Welcome to Creation Care Conversations. I'm Genevieve Donsalar, the Connecticut Field Organizer for Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. And I'm Doug Clark. I'm a retired UCC pastor. Thus far, the focus of our podcast series has been on creation care and, and climate justice and how they're related. And lately, we've been talking about intersectional environmentalism, the recognition that that the global virus pandemic, the persistence of systemic racism and misogyny, and the looming climate crisis are inextricably linked with one another. And the magnitude of these interlocking crises is made even more daunting by the stress around the recent election, which has not yet been resolved, at least not officially. But anyway, today we are really pleased to have with us Ellen Jennings and Amber Henry Neuroth, each of whom has been pastoring a church during this time congregations they've served since 2011 in the Washington DC metro area. Ellen and Amber, we are so excited to have you here and to get a chance to hear what it's been like to lead a faith community during this uh, pandemic and the new focus on racial justice and the growing threat of climate change. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to meet both of you today. Um, so Doug and I typically begin our interviews by asking our guests to share their climate testimony. Um, over email, both of you were like, eh, we're not really climate people, but um, how Doug and I think of climate testimony is sort of the story of the development of someone's either environmental awareness, their faith awareness, what, what convicts you and how did you come to that conviction towards your current vocation? So I was wondering if each of you could talk a bit about how your faith informs your vocation, um, what led you into this current um, position that each of you hold. So Ellen, would you mind going first on that? Uh, sure, yeah. So I'm at least 10 years older than Amber, um, which actually gives me the benefit of having um, gone to divinity school in the late 80s and early 90s, during which time there was actually a renaissance of um, environmental action and interest. Um, 1990 was the 20th anniversary of First Earth Day. And so um, even before I started divinity school, I guess the year before, I went, I um, was involved in a number of different volunteer projects after having um, taught boarding school for one year after college and worked on Wall Street for one year after college. Um, I know, right? And so, um, so anyway, I was super clear about what I did and didn't want to do and um, what I uh, believed in, in terms of um, forward movement for humankind. And um, so that year I spent three months working on the breeding ranch of Heifer Project International down in Perryville, Arkansas. Um, three months at a Buddhist meditation retreat center in Western Massachusetts and six months working at the Ecology Center in Berkeley, California. And so during that period of time, oh, and while I was in Arkansas, I also spent a little bit of time um, on this amazing, um, in this amazing place called Meadow Creek Project, which was um, one of the early sort of sustainable environmental um, farm community projects, um, at least at that point of time. I know that there were some in the 70s as well. 
And so I became very, very interested in the connection between faith and environment because I had met a British man at Meadow Creek Project who was the director of the um, International Consultancy on Religion, Education, and Culture, a very fancy British name for, you know, basically um, doing a lot of really good work internationally on the connections between faith and environment in, in all different religious traditions. So I became very convicted that um, in order for environmental change to happen, of course there needs to be science and public policy, um, but both based on my interest area, which was religion, and based on my belief that it was um, terribly important to change hearts in order to change minds and hence public policy. I actually went into divinity school with my primary interest being um, ecology and religion. And so my time in divinity school was spent um, focusing on, um, well, basically ecofeminism. Um, because even at that time, for me, the intersectionality between um, women and nature and religion and the issues um, concerning oppression of women and oppression of nature. I wasn't yet there on the um, environmental racism aspects. That came a little bit after, um, but very shortly after. And um, so I have, I have been very passionate about eco-justice issues for a very long time. That being said, the reason I answered your question about um, you know, not being a climate person or responded that I am not a climate person is that as a pastor of a congregation, there are so many other social justice issues um, that one must pay attention to that at least for me, it's been really important to sort of go with the um, passions and interests and talents of the people in my church. And while environment, creation care, climate is certainly one of the things that we do support and highlight in our mission and social action area. It hasn't been where I have found sort of the major energy in my congregation. And so, you know, we focus more on areas, for instance, of homelessness and poverty um, and racial justice, certainly this year. Um, I'll stop there, but that's kind of where I'm coming from. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, Amber, would you mind sharing your climate testimony or your vocational journey, however you want to frame that? Sure. Um, similar to Ellen, I think I my vocational journey is very connected to my seminary experience uh, of going to, I went to Princeton Theological Seminary. And when you're, when you go to seminary, you're exposed to so many different points of view when you've basically probably had just one or two congregational experiences up until that point. And so for me to, to get a glimpse of feminism is really what I got uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s at Princeton. Uh, and a glimpse of racial justice and social justice was just starting to happen there. It, it was enough to really ignite my already progressive theology and give it some action possibilities, but it wasn't enough to have a structure to support that. So in a way that was great because that gave a path of, of real calling and need. So uh, I, I set up uh, my partner, my spouse now uh, was doing social action organizing at the campus and I was uh, more involved with the feminism stuff and trying to get 
more female professors, uh, more feminist theology classes, stuff like that. Uh, and I was Presbyterian at the time and moved to BUCC during that time through a congregation. My faith is very UCC and I came to it in a congregational way. So I came through a congregation and that is also very UCC, I think. Um, and those, those people in that congregation still are part of my heart and my faith identity. And the congregation ourselves has evolved on the issues of faith and justice issues. And we're actually updating our identity documents, our constitution to reflect more of a sense of um, justice across the board. So there was in our, in the one we, wrote about 10 years ago, there was a creation care is what it was called back then. So the words justice really weren't in there. It was all caring. <laughs> um, so we're now updating that um, to reflect more where the congregation is at, not only for creation, but for racial justice um, and for, for other kinds of justice issues that are all intersecting as we've talked about. And that's been wonderful for me to be a part of because it kind of reflects a parallel evolution in my own personal faith too. Wow, that's that's great, Amber. Um, and I, I realize that I'm talking with graduates of Harvard, Yale, and Princeton at this particular moment. <laughs> Ellen was a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. Jenna is a graduate of Yale Divinity School. And Amber is a graduate of Princeton Seminary. But one of the special things I think that, that um, we want to, to hear about from Ellen and Amber is each of us serving a congregation in the Metro DC area. And you know, there's a, there's a lot happening in, in DC right now. So, um, well, we're in Cleveland park, which is, um, if anybody is familiar with DC, it's a little bit North of the national zoo. So it's a very, it's much more of a neighborhood setting. Um, and, we have very much of a DC identity. Most of our congregation members live in the district. You know, some do live in Maryland and Virginia. I live in Maryland. Um, but I would say that our concerns and the organizations with which we work, um, including um, Interfaith Power and Light, which is the, um, in my opinion, the sort of premier interfaith um, environmental organization. Those are DC based. I mean, they also have, they have Virginia offices and Maryland offices, but we work very much with the, the DC um, office. And so, yes, I would say that the work that we do um, in terms of mission and social action, in fact, one of our criterion for organizations with which we work is that they do have a local impact. Um, and so then in terms of COVID, which I think is part of what you're asking here, um, our congregation has been very fortunate in that um, no one in our immediate congregation has been um, extremely sick um, or God forbid died from COVID. We do have congregation members who have lost family um, mm. to COVID in other parts of the country. Um, we went um, online immediately. Um, the Sunday after um, the World Health Organization declared the global pandemic, um, we went online with our very first Zoom service. We had never live streamed a service before. We've been talking about it for a few years. Um, and this was the nudge that pushed us over, obviously. So it has been a very steep learning curve for me as pastor. I will completely admit that. It's been 
very challenging. It's also been exciting. Um, but I will say that as the person who, you know, in my own home is DJing, I call it DJing the service because there's nobody else who's pushing any buttons except for me. Um, you know, it, it has been a very steep learning curve and I'm continuing to learn. And we've gotten all of, and I'm about to say something that, that I, I say with pride, but also with um, caution. Um, I am very proud of the fact that we have gotten all of our regular programming and then some online, you know, yay us, okay. On the other hand, we're in the midst of a freaking global pandemic. We have been in the midst of a very, very tough and contentious election season. Many of my congregation members have been you know, working on the election and we have been in the midst of a, um, a renaissance, if you will, of awareness about the problem of racism in this country all of which my congregation has chosen to highlight and put intentional focus on. So I am going to say that trying to put all of our regular programming online, continue to provide fabulous online worship services, um, you know, do member care virtually, which we've also put a lot of energy into, and put the focus on these national and international challenges um, is too much. I call us a large, small congregation um, because we are a small congregation. We're a, a large and vibrant small congregation, but we are still small. And um, I would suggest that sustainability is not just important in terms of creation care or environmental care. It is also important in terms of congregation care and individual human care. And I think that that's a growing edge for us. Yeah, there, there are so many aspects to um being virtual in virtual ministry, but I'm glad you pointed to the, the whole issue of sustainability in terms of congregational life. Um, Amber, I, I was fascinated to hear about the property that your church has and that you have woods and people can go, can go walking there. So that's certainly uh, an asset, but what's it been like for you serving a church? Uh, you're not in DC, but you're certainly in the DC metro area. So what, what's that been like for you? Yes. I actually live in DC and serve a church in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. So I'm kind of the reverse, um, which is, uh, as Ellen said, common for this area that people are moving all around. Um, this year has been really challenging. I would echo almost everything that Ellen said reflects my experience. So trying to think of things to say that are different than what Ellen said. Um, so it's nice to know that uh, I have colleagues going through very similar things. Um, I think my congregation, and this may or may not be true in other DC, DC area congregations, has tended to be a little bit overly focused on the national scene of religion, life, and politics. Uh, and justice issues, and not as much on the local scene or the international scene, if that makes sense. That we, we, given that we have so many people that work in federal government and we're right here, uh, we want to be at every protest that's on the National Mall and we are focused on the national issues in a way that I think continues to challenge us because we have to think about these things. We, we are not 
on behalf of the whole nation all the time, or we don't, we shouldn't feel that burden. Uh, and we also have to remember that we are local members of a community that we have issues in the local community that we really need to engage on with our immediate neighbors. Uh, and that it can also, it can shift the perspective if you focus too much on the national and you forget the local or the international. So we have very little international engagement in our particular congregation. And I think that's also a growing edge for us that if we could have some dialogues and partnerships that extended beyond uh, the borders of this nation, it would be a challenge and a comfort in a way because th this season of our lives where there is so much misinformation and propaganda in our own nation, uh, it can feel very isolating to people who are trying to, to have kind of a progressive perspective, forgetting that so much of the developed world shares uh, the progressive perspectives that we have. So to find partnerships outside, I think could be very strengthening and also pull us down from our own um, centering of ourselves, right? <laughs> so, um, and I think DC, no matter how much, how progressive you are or how much you're working for justice, there is a centering of ourselves that goes on and a self-importance um, and an, an understanding of the power that is here. And so that's a constant thing to be working with uh, when you're working with people uh, who serve every day. I would love to just um, piggyback on that a little bit. Amber, thank you so much for acknowledging sort of the, the power aspect of being in DC. Um, I like to think that, I mean, you know, so to say, um, to acknowledge first that my congregation is predominantly white, well-educated and financially well-off. So in addition to many of them living in DC and having that sort of power connection, um, we have an immense amount of privilege in our congregation. And um, it's a constant question that we are asking ourselves how we can best, best use that. Um, you know, it can be easy to go into a, um, as a progressive person, it can be easy to go into a sort of, um, well, at the, at the worst, a shame spiral around, you know, how much privilege we have, um, but that is surely not useful. And so we really try to ask ourselves, you know, what are our, what's our treasure and talent of which we have so much and how do we use that to make a difference in the world? And I think the other thing that I wanted to, um, you know, that was really sparked um, some thinking in me when Amber said it is, you know, being in DC is a blessing and a curse in so many ways, as is everything, I guess. Um, but um, I have been, for some family reasons, like I said, um, have I have been down in the Western Carolinas for the past two weeks. Um, it's not a vacation. <laughs> I won't go into it, but um, I've been down here. And um, it is so clear to me how different the energy is not being in DC or very close to DC. And I, when I use the word energy, I actually use it very specifically. I don't mean it metaphorically. 
I do mean it metaphorically also, but I mean it very literally because I experience a very different sense of energy being away from that power center. And that's regardless actually of who is in the White House, although I will also say that it makes a huge difference in how that energy feels depending on what an administration is doing and who is sitting in the White House. Thanks so much for talking about that a bit. Um, Doug and I were wondering if each of you could speak a bit about what the role of the church is in these times of crisis, in this time, these times of um, change, um, and what the role of the church could be going forward. So sort of recognizing, especially in DC, that the church might be a powerful force, rhetorical or spiritual or otherwise but also um, could be like a grounding space. And I, I, I'm really curious to hear what both of you think of that, of the role of the church this year and in the coming decade as maybe a center for social justice movements or a challenge to social justice movements. I think for me personally and my congregation, where I came to DC and have never left, I came right out of seminary and immediately saw a niche for my personality and my calling and my gifts in that I am a, a nurturing pastoral care focused clergy person. And everyone in DC was stressed out. And I could see that when I came and could see that first and foremost, everyone in DC needs a place to go to recover so that was true then and this year it has been off the <laughs> charts because uh the intentional and and even this whole administration i mean the intention of this administration was to put stress into uh the system of the federal government and and that was a stated uh intention and they were pretty successful at doing that and, and causing stress at multiple levels um, of the functioning of the government. And so very good people with uh, on both sides and every side of the political spectrum who had integrity felt stressed about it. And so my place has been to, to provide a space for them to land. That's where I started in my career anyway. And where that has has gone, uh, it has evolved. So my congregation is about seventy percent white, uh, not as um, wealthy as Ellen's congregation probably, and the twenty five percent that is of mostly black but of mixed race is mostly coming to our congregation, fleeing uh, conservative churches, conservative church experiences. Um, and, and looking for a place to land in a progressive scene and finding no other option than a majority white church. So that same giving a space and comforting, nurturing part of me has been good for that. Then we bring in this diverse, stressed out group. And when we, when I, we started with our intention of being comforting and nurturing and giving spiritual strength, just being ourselves took us toward justice on multiple levels then. 
because once you have this group together, you want to push for things that would make the system better, less stressful, uh, and having a more diverse group immediately challenged uh, the majority white privilege of our culture in the church. And so those things were naturally challenged. So I think that was a really long explanation to get to your question, which was, what is the place of the church? I think when the church comes together in that way, it's, it's both and. You have to have that spiritually comforting and safe space in order to push forward into the world. So the church can offer both a prophetic voice and a sense of hope and meaning in this ridiculously awful time that we're living in. And if we don't offer both, I think that's when the church declines. You know, if we are just saying, come away from the world and we're going to um, not pay attention to what's going on out there and only Jesus matters or only heaven matters. Um, but I think if you only say the social justice and being out in the streets matters, I think this is where the progressive mainline church has kind of aired and where we can learn from our evangelical siblings, you know, that the emotional experience really matters as well. And so we've got to offer a both and there. And when they're connected and it, we are at our strongest. I love that, Amber, the, um, you know, grounding ourselves in, you know, sort of spiritual practice and connection and, um, and out of that, out of community, out of um, our own sense of, being connected to spirit and to other humans, that we then have a solid place from which to do the social justice work. Um, I had one clarifying question for you, just because um, I, I feel like this is really important. I know that you had said that, um, you know, the people of color who have come to your congregation are, you know, seeking a more progressive church. And, um, I am guessing that that is specifically having to do with LGBTQ plus issues, since many black congregations themselves are very passionate and powerful about other social justice issues. Yes. <laughs> yeah. For the most part, I think we, that's how it started at our congregation, uh, was that we had several people who were black who also identify as GLBTQ. And so they they made it into our congregation uh, and were willing to bear some discomforts of culture and race because of the progressive theology. But it wasn't only um, GLBT. That's kind of what started our questioning. But we have had um, multiple folks who have come just on a theological basis. So even some of the progressive black UCC churches in our region have a traditional atonement theory that they would espouse or things like that. That um, so, so I do have some straight people of color that are looking for more progressive theology than they're finding in churches that are majority black. Great, no, that's majority. helpful, thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, so, I guess where I'll start is um, sort of a version of what Amber was talking about. Um, people often talk about pastors having two roles to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And, um, you know, 
I would say, in, and again, in complete agreement with Amber, that it is an absolute both and. Um, our, our job is to do both. And, and the, the um, challenge is, right, to understand the timing. When does it make sense to comfort the afflicted? When does it make sense to afflict the comfortable? And I would say that 2020 has been um, a particular um, point and space in time when that has often been unclear. Because one could argue that all of 2020, with everything going on in our country and our world, has been a moment to comfort the afflicted that we are all afflicted, we are all impacted by this pandemic, we are all having to isolate um, some of us way more than others. Uh, many people are impacted economically, et cetera, um, not to mention the um, you know, election fiasco, et cetera. Um, and yet, going back to the whole privilege piece, um, some of us are more afflicted. And so how do, do I, as a pastor of a you know relatively privileged congregation, um, both acknowledge that you know everyone is struggling this year, um, and in fact at all times, right? We all have. I mean, right now, as I said, I'm not in West in the Western Carolinas for a family vacation. Um, I am I am struggling and dealing with um, a family situation that is very challenging, and so you know we all have our own stuff going on all the time. Um, Hence that, that adage, um, you know, everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Be kind, always. And that is absolutely true. So, you know, my job I see as, as always providing a container, a sanctuary, a safe space for people to bring their whole selves so that they can feel like, you know, no matter how privileged they are, um, they are seen for their full humanness and the pain that we all carry. While at the same time, I am consistently bringing in all of the issues that because of our privilege, we have the ability to address um, in ways that people who do not have financial resources or whiteness or as much education may not have access. I'm not, I'm not saying that people who don't have those things don't have plenty of gifts and talents and skills and things to contribute. I am saying that they may not have the same access to power and they may not have the same ability to um, impact the national conversation. And so how to put those things together, if I had the absolute answer to that, then, um, you know, I don't know, somebody might pay me a lot of money, but maybe not. Actually, if I had the absolute answer to that, they would probably crucify me, but, um, which is really how it goes. Um, but, but that is what I see as my challenge. Um, something I wanted to also say, address, is the question of what is the role of the church? That was more what is the role of the pastor? Um, one of the things that really bothers me right now, um, I'm not somebody who tends to attack the mainstream media because I honestly think they're doing about as best, you know, the best job that they can. And the Washington Post, um, whatever that's called, the flag, staff, the flag, whatever, um, you know, democracy dies in darkness. Um, I really believe mainstream media is trying very hard to bring light to the things that need to be addressed. 
Um, this being said, it is so grating to me that when I'm just going to um, bother NPR for the moment because I'm a huge NPR fan, so they can handle it. I contribute. Um, but, you know, when they bring on a Christian, and I'm, you know, putting that in quotations at the moment, when they bring on a Christian voice, it is 90 plus percent of the time, maybe even 95 percent of the time, a conservative Christian voice. And it really ticks me off that that is the voice that gets to represent Christianity in this country. And, you know, it's like, I almost wish we could have a different word for ourselves, but then I'm like, no, you know, they don't get to have that word. They don't get to, you know, keep that word. And I know I'm othering by using the term they, but um, by they, I mean conservative right-wing evangelicals do not get to claim the term Christianity. And so I really do wish and, um, you know, would love to have access to some ears to put this bug in them. Um, that when NPR and other mainstream media sources bring on Christian voices, that they bring on a diversity of Christian voices. And I love Amber's idea of connecting with uh, more progressive Christian voices globally. Um, I have a couple of very dear friends um, in the United Church of Canada, the other UCC, and um, not that all United Church of Canada um, churches or congregations are progressive any more than all UCC churches or congregations are progressive, but the majority are. And I think it'd be really great to connect with them more. I also think that um, the more progressive denominations or the, at least the more progressive um, portions of, um, you know, what we call the mainline or mainstream denominations, um, um, could do more together. You know, I think that there's, it's sort of like, um, there's, there's a certain jealousy or um, protectiveness, you know, even with, with congregations in the same denomination working together. Like, we don't want our people to find out how great something else is, right? Because they might then go to that church or that denomination. But I think we could do really well to work with, you know, the Unitarian Universalists and, you know, most of the Episcopalians and um, the Presbyterian Church USA and, um, you know, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America and the Methodists who voted what I'm going to say is the right way. Um, I, mean, I know I'm leaving out some, oh, of course, the disciples. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think that the more we can work ecumenically and in fact, interfaith, um, the more we can accomplish. Thank you so much, Ellen and Amber, for that. Um, I want to ask one final question and then we can um, wrap this up. Um, what is your prayer for the church um, for the remainder of this year? And alongside that, how can lay people pray for pastors at this time? I'll go. Um, I think it's certainly a lovely question uh, and I'm grateful for the question just uh, to, for anyone to want to pray for us is wonderful. Um, my prayer for the church, uh, first and foremost, is for its survival, for its transformation, that we would be able to move ourselves uh, from a place that is fixed in walls to a place that has a balance uh, between, I think this virtual time has really taught me how much incarnated in present person community is really important i don't want to see the church go completely uh virtual or 
or separated. And yet I think we need to find that balance and we haven't found it yet. And so I would, my, that's my prayer for the church is that we survive this pandemic enough to continue to move into transformation. Prayers for me uh, and pastors. Uh, I think like anyone in any leadership position right now, there is a great deal of strain. This is a leadership challenge um, to try to do things in a different way under stress. So all of our congregants, even people who might have been big supporters or contributors or um, been low uh, in our radar when, this, when the stress levels were lower or different, um, the community is now responding to the stress of the pandemic uh, and the multiple pandemics in different ways. Uh, and those are not always easy or healthy or have good communication. So uh, similar stresses are going on at the congregational level. And then I have other community hats, other community groups, the school where my kids attend. All of those are stressed situations right now where the same kinds of arguments are going on. And it's a lot to bear as a leader in, in that position. So I would just pray for strength and for self-care and um, the ability to kind of turn it off um, and, and have, have some boundaries, I guess, from some of that would be the prayers I would ask for myself. Um, well, Amber ended with boundaries, so I'll begin with them. Um, I think that boundaries are key. And... Um, when I, but I think you have to define what you mean by boundaries, right? So, I mean, each of us, each of us has to define that for ourselves and each congregation has to define what that means. Um, when I was on sabbatical several years ago, um, I, I, uh, there's, there's an organization, actually a business, they put out delightful um, planners called Sacred Ordinary Days. And um, the, founder of that business um, when they first started talked about um, being joyful, effective, and sustainable. And so when I was on sabbatical several years ago, I took that as my mantra to sort of reflect on and then um, bring back to the congregation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And everyone loved that, you know, tagline. Everybody loved um, that idea and it's amazing how difficult it is to live into um mostly the sustainable part and i think that is an aspect of our culture overall um certainly being a church in the dc area we are i mean you know doug named it at the beginning we each of us graduated from an ivy league divinity school so you know my guess would be that our personalities, um, Jenna, I don't wanna speak for you, but I think I can speak for Amber. We both have a tendency towards over-functioning and overachieving. And, um, and there, are, there are gifts to that, right? When it's, when it's needed, it's good to be able to pull that out. It really is. Um, but it can also become an idol, overproducing, over-functioning, overachieving, um, hyper-efficiency, you know, all good things when you need them, but if that's a lifestyle for either a human being or a congregation, um, it is neither joyful nor effective nor sustainable. And so I guess my prayer for my congregation, especially as we move into Advent, 
would be that we use this to slow down a bit. So my prayer is, first of all, one of gratitude for each of you and what you are doing and for the wisdom you've shared with what I, you know, our wider audience that will be listening to this podcast. And also my prayer would be for um, sustainability. Thank you. It was really great. Yeah. Thank you both for your ministry in the wider world and for inviting us to be a part of it. Thank you for listening to Creation Care Conversations. We're glad you join us every time we offer up a new episode. Please rate us, like us, follow us. Make sure you can catch us wherever you like to listen to podcasts best. Thank you. Bye.